But bias, you think bias is a good thing or a bad thing? Come on, this is a very small church, so I'm going to treat it like a bit of a classroom. You can talk back to me, okay? Is, 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 yes, okay. Hey, you guys are ahead of me. But most people who th think about bias, I think you think, well, that's, that's not a good thing to be biased, right? You know, lead you astray. Does it get us closer to or farther from the truth, right? Um, and especially for those of us who've gone through a lot of academia, we go through a lot of training in how to reduce your bias, right? Um, in the humanities, you know, the sciences are just unbiased anyways, right, engineers? So you don't have to worry about bias. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm obviously saying that tongue-in-cheek. Um, but what about religion? Okay. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous verse in the Bible that, that might come quickly to mind when these things are under consideration. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. I trans take it here from the New English Translation. The human mind is more deceitful than anything. The word there means something like crooked or whatever, right? The same word uh, as Jacob's name, by the way. The human mind is more Jacob than anything. <laughs> How'd you like to have that for a name, right? <laughs> of course, what did Jacob run around doing? <laughs> See, he was, he was, yeah, he was, he was deceitful, right? Uh, human mind is more deceitful than anything else. It is incurably bad. Who can understand it, right? So therefore, when we go to the Bible, we, we got to get our mind out of the way, right? Then we can get the truth about God. You know, you might have heard people say these kinds of things when they're in a Bible study group or a Sabbath school, right? Well, you know, let's try to, you know, get rid of those presuppositions and just see what the Bible says, right? Or here, here's a really good one. They only say that because that's what they want the Bible to say, right? That one wins arguments in Sabbath school. You guys don't argue in your Sabbath school classes here, do you? Heavens no. Good. Good for this church. And by the way, I just want, just because it came up here during the, during the thing, uh, and hello to our online audience, by the way, I have to mention that I did, in fact, floss my teeth this morning, okay? Jose, where's Jose? All right, there he is. All right, so methodologies then come in to help us reduce our bias, and I'll just take you through a little history of, because this is how we were taught to do it, and so you got to go through the history of things, right? So... Methods of Bible interpretation that, you know, kind of go through the ages here. In, uh, in the early church fathers and then down through the Middle Ages, you have the quadriga, which is the name for a chariot drawn by four horses. Think Ben-Hur, right? Um, and those four horses are the four senses of Scripture. So they would go to the Bible text and look for four different meanings that could be in those words, okay? Um, uh, they might or might not be. It depends on who you're talking to, right? I mean, as always, it kind of depends, right? Matters of interpretation. But you look for the literal sense. That's the foundation of the house. And then on top of that, you build the allegorical, which is how that literal sense has other applications to salvation history. And Adventists still have this in a way when we think typologically about scriptural application. Uh, and then they go to the tropological level, which is the moral application of it. Okay, well, how does this then uh, apply to our daily lives as Christians? And a lot of Sabbath school discussions in the church take place at the tropological level, okay? Regardless of what it literally means or typologically means. 
And then finally, there's the anagogical sense, which is how do we use this to ascend to the timeless realm where God is? And that's one that we don't have time to get into now, because that brings in a whole host of other issues. Okay, then comes the Reformation. And the Reformation um, was, was really, in its Bible study, grounded in the humanistic arts, okay? Uh, Martin Luther was not a doctor of theology, he was a master of arts. And uh, he went back to the original languages of Scripture. His goal was to get back to the origin, okay? What does it just plainly say? Let's scrape away all those other layers which are clouding the issues and look at the original languages, interpret them in their literal and historical sense, all right? And that's, I mean, Martin Luther said, if we lose the study of the original languages, we lose the Reformation, right? And so they make us study languages in college down to this day, all right? Um, and much too many pastors chagrin. But Luther introduced a, a kind of a critical element into his study of Scripture in that way, because you can kind of take things on on the basis of history, too, all right? And uh, the Protestant reformers, uh, their, their, their heirs, if you will, came up with historical critical interpretation, which says that we really only need to consider history in terms of what happened here in this world, and we need to treat the Bible as we would treat any other historical text and critique it from that perspective, no special pleading. And out of the historical critical method, um, well, let's just say that there are some interesting things that you can learn from doing it, but I think the Jews have the best critique of the historical critical method. Um, I read a, an article by a rabbi and scholar that was called Higher Criticism, Higher Anti-Semitism. Because what they did was pick the Old Testament apart so that that had no effect. And all of these higher critics were also anti-Semites. They were trying to take down the Jewish religion, also carrying on a project of Martin Luther's, which had issues with it. So let's not make our heroes out to be too heroic, okay? Jesus is the only real hero in the story of salvation history. All right, so in reaction to the historical critical method, you have the historical grammatical method of interpretation, which uh, I'm going to associate here with Christians much like Seventh-day Adventists, who wanted to elevate the authority of Scripture and not pick it apart. And uh, again, but there's a sense of, you know, how do we do this without just reading whatever we want into the Bible? Well, we have to figure out what the author of that book meant to say when it was originally written down. And so we do, we look at it in terms of history, and we look at it in terms of the grammar that's there. In ways, it's kind of going back to what Martin Luther was doing. In other ways, it's going beyond him. But historical grammatical interpretation can have its problems as well, right? You lose the typological, you lose the, uh, you know, those, those applications that we make in, in Sabbath school class that help us in our daily lives. Now, the point of all of these things is to reduce our bias in interpretation, to make the Bible says what it needs to say to me without me reading my own self into the Bible. 
And what I want to ask is, what would such an unbiased interpreter of Scripture look like? If this is the ideal way to interpret Scripture, then what is the ideal interpreter of Scripture if the bias reduction methods are the way to read the Bible? Well, where do we get bias from? We get it from our past, right? A lot of the times, yeah? Um, we'll look at that more deeply as we go into the rest of this sermon. I'll, I'll kind of use that to illustrate the rest of my points. But a lot of our biases come from the fact that we identify ourselves with certain groups of people who have a story, right? And we consider ourselves to have a story. And that story kind of makes the world show up to us in various ways that it doesn't show up to other people who aren't like us. We call those biases. We also have a will, right? We can choose things, yeah? We could choose to interpret Scripture in, in various ways, right? So bias can come up because we're, we're making choices, interpretive choices. We have limited horizons, you know, limited perspectives, and we make choices within them. And of course, we have desires, right? <laughs> oh, desires bring in a lot of biases, don't they? We want certain things to be there when we read the Bible, and we want certain things not to be there when we read the Bible, yeah? Especially if we take it as an authority. And, uh, of course, we have goals and intentions that arise from our past story, our current choices and desires, and we, we have purposes, we have tensions. We want to go somewhere, and we want the Bible to send us in that direction. So if we get rid of our backstory, our will, our desires, our intentions, and those things, oh, we also talked in, in Sabbath school about awarenesses, right? Um, if we get rid of all those things, then what's the unbiased, ideal interpreter of Scripture? A robot. A robot. Thank you, son. Do you agree with him? It's a robot. <laughs> it's a computer, right? An automaton. <laughs> yeah? To use the old-fashioned language. That's why I called this sermon, Characters are Computers, you see. Or in... in, in uh, to use the words of uh, Avell and White, the kind of character that would sustain Satan's accusation against God. Right? Because what's Satan accusing God of? Job chapter 1, verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Right? For no reason? Yeah? You've blessed him, God. You've made him rich, right? You've given him all the stuff he wants. Of course he serves you. And that you know, sets up the conflict of the book of Job, doesn't it? Satan's accusation against God is that we only love God because of all the goodies he's giving us. Not because God is good in and of himself. Right? So Satan is saying, God, they, they only serve you because they're biased, right? And in fact, he's saying, God, you are the most biased one of them all. And that makes you arbitrary, you see? 
You just arbitrarily set up these hoops that people have to jump through to please you, and then in return you give them the things that they want. Yeah. So the ideal servant of God, according to this accusation, is a robot, right? <laughs> or on the other hand, the accusation could be spun the other way, that God is just wanting us to be a bunch of robots, a bunch of behaviorally modified subjects, right? Who just salivate when the bell rings. Huh. Interesting, eh? So what are we going to do with all these biases? Well, first of all, I want to point out that the Bible was not written for robots, right? The Bible was written for people, okay? According to its kind of... There's the, like two or three places where the Bible addresses itself to itself in a certain way and explains what it's about. Probably the most famous one is here in 2 Timothy 3, chapter, 5, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul is talking to Timothy... And says, since childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures that help you to be wise in a way that leads to salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, for training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. So notice here that the qualities of a person are involved in the interpretation of Scripture, right? The goal of Scripture is to make us wise. That is someone who exercises good judgment, right? Now, we got computer people sitting over here. Do computers exercise judgment? No. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, right? You know, it's not like they, you know, weigh the pros and the cons. You know, like it's... it's it, um, or, or look at a situation and say, well, you know, this, this is what a wise course of action would call for. We, we don't usually think of them as being wise, right? Um, no, w wisdom is something that you develop over time, right? Um, and we see that this is the role of the Bible. It's to help us develop over time, right? We're, we're supposed to make mistakes and then have them corrected, Right? God, you know, the, the, the anticipation here is not that we'll be mistake-free, right? If, if a computer makes mistakes, right, the error is on the programmer, isn't it? <laughs> right? <laughs> or or some, some other, you know, external factor could be involved, right? But it's not the computer's fault, right? You know, it's just doing, it's running what it was programmed to do, yeah? Right? Um, uh, oh, I listened to a really interesting thing about how the, the vote count in the Netherlands was distorted because a cosmic ray hit a thing just in the right way to flip a bit on the, on the chip. You can, I'll, I'll talk to you guys about that later. But yeah, there's, you can sort out these problems, but was it the computer's fault? No, it wasn't, right? But the Bible wasn't written for that. It was written for people who make mistakes and can come to correct them. Um, it's for training character, right? Character doesn't, is not a linear process, right? That, you know, you run the program and it's done. Character gets developed over time as you uh, go out into the world, uh, do things, experience the results, see what happened, and then say, oh, well, this was good. or this, and, and you get feedback from other sources and you build something up over time. The Bible is written to be read by people. So, are people biased? Yes, we are, right? 
irreducible. So, in fact, I would want to propose that the Bible would make no sense to an unbiased interpreter. Right? It might be able to tell you things about the Bible, but the sense of it would be lost. Right? Why it matters wouldn't be there if there were no biases involved in the interpretation. So let's go to Acts chapter 17. That's where I want to uh, look at for our main text today. We're going to start with a really classic, at least in this tradition, classic verse for uh, the Bible. Okay, Acts chapter 17, verse 10. I'm going to wait for the pages to stop turning. All right, Acts chapter 17, verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. How many ever heard of an Adventist church named Berea before? There's a lot of them out there, right? We're going to find out why. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. That was their main method of evangelism. And there were lots of itinerant Jewish preachers going to synagogues and sharing their message around the Roman Empire. So that was a thing. New teachers would come in and they'd talk about, you know, what the latest thing from Jerusalem was. Now, these ones were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. You know, you can infer, why did they have to get out of there by night, right? Because in Thessalonica, they were not being well-received. But in Berea, they received the word with all readiness. Now, just, just a little bit of a heads up here. The word often in the Bible is not referring to the Bible, but to the message that is being preached by Jesus and the apostles. Now, that message ends up in Scripture, okay? But here in the New Testament, that's, that's the word. The word of the, the gospel message, the, the news of God's kingdom that Paul is bringing to them. That the Messiah has arrived in the form of Jesus Christ. Um, then they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So if, if the New Testament is being like written at this point, um, and the word is they're preaching, then what are the scriptures? The Old Testament. All right, so they're going to compare this new supposed revelation with what they've received before in the Old Testament and figure out if it's, you know, if that's where it is, right? If, if, if it's the truth. They search the scriptures daily and they are fair-minded, right? They give the message a fair shake comparing it to what they already have, what, what has already proven to be Reliable, And that's what we aspire to be as, as Seventh-day Adventists, right? I would hope so. I mean, to me, that's pretty, pretty far down there in the, in the Adventist spirit, right? Is, hey, if you can show it to me from the Bible, you know, I'll accept it, right? Um, and, and we often, like uh, Jose was saying, right? I'll often sh share that with people when I'm studying with them. You bring to me what you have, I'll bring to you what I have. You know, let's let the Bible settle it, right? I'm, I've, yeah, I've got all this education, but ultimately I got to submit to the Bible. And you could show me something there that I haven't seen yet. So let's talk it out, right? Let's be like the Bereans. Now, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, 
they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So if you got a little map in your head, uh, if I remember this correctly, they're sort of starting out in the more of the northern part of Greece and they're heading south along the, along the east coast of the, I think it's the Aegean Sea there. My kids will correct me if I get the geography wrong. All right. Now here's something new is going to happen. That hasn't happened before, at least as far as we've seen in the book of Acts, okay? So far, the gospel has been preached to Jews, to Samaritans, and to God-fearing Gentiles who are hanging out with the Jews in their synagogues in the different cities around the world. Something's different going to happen here in Acts. And it's also going to be a bit different than in Berea, where everybody looked at what Paul said, looked at what the Bible said, and said, hey, that's the same thing. And they all got on the same page, right? I mean, it's nice when, they ha when that happens, but what happens when we disagree, right? What happens when we look at the Bible and, you know, I'm, I'm saying it means this, and you're saying it means that, and then we're accusing each other of being biased, right? I think we can learn something from that from what happens here in Athens, because now Paul is going to preach to people with a different background, right? They don't have that uh, anchor in the Old Testament in Athens any longer. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, those are the God-fearing Gentiles who also hang out in the synagogue, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So he's going out into the the marketplaces where, you know, we call it today still the marketplace of ideas, right? The public square. What's in the marketplace? Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Oh, man, I could keep you here for a long time talking about the Epicureans and the Stoics. But let's just say that, you know, they don't regard the Old Testament the way Paul does, Okay. And some of them said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, so they think maybe, maybe he's preaching about this God Jesus and his goddess consort Anastasia, which means resurrection. Okay. So he's got to clear this up, right? Paul's not preaching about, you know, a pagan god and his goddess, right? <laughs> and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, so-called Mars Hill, right? Ares, Mars, okay? Um, that's a place where the philosophers would hang out and talk about their ideas, debate things, following in the tradition of Socrates, who asked people questions, right? Tried to draw the truth out of them or show them how little they knew. They took him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Are we living in modern Athens today or what, my friends? Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, uh, I, I can, guilty as charged, right? I mean, I, 
Uh, I hang out on the internet and look for new things and then share what I find, right? That's one of my hobbies, okay? Um, so I guess I'm a little bit culturally Athenian as well. Maybe more than a little bit. Um, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, um, these Athenians didn't hold a very high view of women, by the way, although the Epicureans would bring women in, from what I understand. Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Uh, or you even say unknown God, without the the, right? To unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. That's very interesting, right? Paul has been going around to Athens, not just incensed at their idolatry, but studying it, right? And he's looking for something as he's studying it. And what is he looking for? He's going to explain in the next verses. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives all life, breath, and all things. This is very standard Old Testament polemic against idolatry. Okay, um, So I'm going to skip to what's new in what Paul says. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, this is this one true God he's proclaiming, right? In the hope that they might grope for him. Right? It's like a, if, if you have a blindfold on, uh, you know, and you're working your way through the forest. One, one night, I remember I was stuck without a flashlight and I had to go somewhere in the woods and there was, it was overcast and it was a moonless night and I couldn't see my hand in front of my face, you know? So I was feeling for the trail with my feet and going like this to make sure I didn't hit any trees. Right? This, this is how Paul describes the nations as seeking for God. But it says, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and what? And find him. Right? So, so there is, actually they do hit some of the trees right, as they're doing this, right? They do have a bit of a sense of the path, right? The nations do. Because God has set it up so that they can actually find some way to him in this way. He is not far from any of us. It's a pretty universal claim, isn't it? So when Paul goes into Athens, he's going in with the knowledge that, hey, God has set up the times and the boundaries of these people. And the times and the boundaries of people are what create their, their story, right? Their history, their background, which is an important source of our biases, right? But God has already set up our histories such that we have biases towards seeking him out and finding him. Okay? And Paul is going in looking for where is, where is the bias here in Athens? Yeah, they got these terrible idols going on, but somewhere in there I know that they're, they're looking for God. And, and, and he eventually comes across the altar to the unknown God. He says, oh, you know, that's my way in, right? That's my way into this conversation about Jesus. 
What do you think? Has God only been at work with the Athenians and not with the rest of us? <laughs> All right. Is there stuff in our history that God has put there to direct us toward things that we can find him? Does it help us to understand his word? I should hope so. Now, it's not unadulterated, right? There's also a bunch of garbage in there, right? But Paul's going to take them through that path to find out, hey, this is where God is, and here's where he wants to go with you next, right? Not here's all the way that you need to go, but here's where he wants to go with you next, right? Now he's going to do something really radical. Are you ready for this? <laughs> I, had to, I had to quote this from the NRSV because they actually put the quotation marks where they need to go. All right. For, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, quote, for we too are his offspring. We already said the Old Testament doesn't carry any weight at Mars Hill, does it? So who does Paul quote? <laughs> yeah, they're, you know, the poets. And, and these statements were originally written about Zeus, right? These statements in quotation marks were originally written about Zeus. But, but Paul says, Paul says, hey, that, that's actually something that was talking about the one true God. Did you catch it? <laughs> wow. Now, the, if you could talk to Brian about the implications of all this for evangelism. <laughs> what I want to just say is, hey, you know, um, we need to take a little more seriously some of the things that are in our cultures. Because God didn't write the Bible for, for unbiased computers, right? He wrote it for people among whom he's already been at work in shaping our biases so that we can find some way into him, into seeking him. Whoop. Well, I think I've I skipped over something here, guys. Can you get me my last slide? Maybe I'm missing it. Well... I think I can go on without it. it should, oh, oh, I should be two from the end now. I should be in Acts chapter two next. Because some people are going to look at this and say that what's going on here is chaos, right? Because I got my biases, you got your biases. How do we sort out all these biases, right? Um, and this is something that... Um, <laughs> That actually happens in the Bible in Acts chapter 2. Let's go there. Another big source of our biases can be our, our languages. Yeah? Um, regardless of how much you subscribe to the, it's called the Worfian hypothesis, which is that our languages do a lot in kind of shaping our view of reality, right? There are things that are expressed in some languages easier than in others. And languages also create communities of interpretation, right? They're part of that times and boundaries that God set. So they, they bring in biases. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that God is, is quite comfortable with a diversity of biases in that way. Um, Acts chapter 2 and verse 7, the Holy Spirit gets poured out at Pentecost. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one each other, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, uh, the Parthians were, were kind of wild people, right? Out on the edge of the Eurasian steppe, you know, this, 
uh, and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Livia adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Right? We're all, this, and the people go, this is chaos. <laughs> and they were amazed. Oh, yeah, thanks, Anson. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God, so that they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one each other, whatever could this mean? Right? Others were mocking and said they are full of new wine. <laughs> right? These guys are high. Yeah? What are they on? Now, interpreters have noticed that what happens here in Acts chapter 2 is very similar to what happens in Genesis 11, right? In Genesis 11, God also sends down a multitude of languages on people. But what is the result there? <laughs> the, the dispersion of the building project at the Tower of Babel, right? Now, why do they want to build up that Tower of Babel? Because they said, if we go out and spread through the whole earth, we'll be divided, we'll be fractured, we won't have unity, right? We all need to get together and build this tower so that we can be one people and one language. Yeah? And of course, get that one tower going, you've got that, that, that elimination of biases, you see. We're going to have unity without any differences. The biases will be gone. We'll have a single approach to God. Because guess what Babel means? Bob means gate and L means God. Right? The gateway to God. Right? We all have to go through it all together in the same way. But what does God say? Oh, I'm going to just give you what I wanted you to have in the first place. Here's all these languages. See what you can do with them. And without God, they can't do anything. The whole project disintegrates, right? But here we have the Holy Spirit, right? Sending down all these languages, and, and people without the Holy Spirit are confused, but those who have it are going, wow, we're hearing about wonderful things God is doing in our own language. See, God wants a multitude of approaches because, in fact, God is a plurality, and he wants a multitude of different people. Because with a plurality, you can have something you can't have with a single monistic unity. And that is love. Alright? That's where I want to end on. Because guess what the biggest bias of them all is? Love. Right? And that's what God wants for us. God's bias is love. And thank goodness, right? Because if God was just a computer running a program, none of us would be around right now. Because we got way outside the parameters of that program, didn't we? Right? Because of love, we're, we're all still here. So what do we need in order to interpret the Bible correctly? Well, first thing we need, I want to argue. Now, the methodologies are good and well and very important. Don't get me wrong, I love them. They help to correct us when we get off the path of love. But they're only in a small part of our Bible interpretation. It begins and ends with understanding love. Okay, So we need love, first of all, for God and a desire to know Him. And we've seen that God has done His best to put that bias into us through the course of history and how He's led our various peoples in various ways. We need love for each other. You have to realize that, you know, our rebellious hearts want to have it all, right? We want to have Babel. We want to get that singular 
view of the world, then we don't have to rely on anybody else, right? But God wants us to learn to love each other in that give and take. So sometimes I got to go, well, you know, my interpretations could be wrong and I need a brother over here to help me out. In fact, I need people who come from really different backgrounds than me to help me understand the Bible. And that's why I love pastoring a multicultural church. And finally, we need love for ourselves, right? Because sometimes we can get into a bit of a hatred of ourselves thing when it comes to interpreting the Bible and, oh, how terrible I am and, you know, oh, you know how wretched we are before God, right? But God tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, right? So we have to have an appreciation for what God has put into our own backgrounds that help us to come to the Bible with his perspective. So in conclusion, what I've presented for you today is a kind of a philosophical relativism. All right? That can be a scary word for some people. But what I'm asking you to do is not hold things relative to your own view, but go through a process with God and Scripture and each other of learning how to hold things relative to God's view of reality. I hope we can do that.